or decision before withdrawing, modifying, or upholding her decision to keep Trump off the primary ballot on Super Tuesday. For WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. I don't actually think these guys really think they can predict the future. I think what they think is that if they can convince you that they can predict the future, that you won't try to fight it. When we move with it, when we march with it, when we dance with it, it adds a whole other level to our experience. When it occurred to me one day longer could fit into conga, that's what made it seem like I'll just make this song. Hi, and welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock with Elise Bryant. On today's show, essayist, novelist, and activist Cory Doctorow on choke point capitalism and the threats that Amazon and other huge corporations pose to creative freedom and the well-being of authors and the world. Plus, Elise shares one of her top ten favorite labor songs. Labor Notes editor Al Bradbury tells us the story behind her song Union Conga and previews this year's Labor Notes conference. The R.J. Phillips Band remembers the Bread and Roses strike and on Labor History in two. The year was 1874. That was the day Arturo Alfonso Schomburg was born. Co-host Elise Bryant starts us off. in solidarity forever. It's, the original song was written by a Wobbly, Ralph Chaplin, and the San Francisco Rock and Solidarity Chorus with Dave Welsh, and I think Dave Welsh is behind us, turned it into a rock and roll version rather than the traditional, when the unions, when the unions, inspiration through the workers. And the effects of music and singing are at its most powerful when we move with it, when we march with it, when we dance with it, it adds a whole other level to our experience. So when people are marching and we're singing our songs and we're out there chanting on the picket lines, that's the power of our coming together. That's the power of one. Co-host Elise Bryant with one of her top 10 favorite labor songs, Rockin' Solidarity Forever by the San Francisco Labor Chorus. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Next up, the latest installment of our new series, The Story Behind the Song. 
Come on, everybody, do the Union Conga. Know that you can keep it going one day longer. Come on, everybody, do the Union Conga. Know that you can keep it going one day longer. Come on, everybody, do the Union Conga. Know that you can keep it going one day longer. Feel the power of the Union getting stronger. Everybody, do the Conga till the bosses beat. Everybody, gather around now. Let the bosses feel the heat. When the Union inspiration gets into the workers' feet. It's the rhythm of the strike line. Solidarity so sweet. If you want to win a contract, you have got to hit the street. Bada, bada, bada. Come on, everybody, do the union conga. Know that you can keep it going one day longer. Feel the power of the union getting stronger. Everybody do the conga till the bosses beat. Feel the passion of the action. Let it chase your fears away. Rain or sunshine on the front line Till we make the bosses pay Got to get up, get together And give it everything we've got Once the union hits the pavement There's no way we're gonna stop Better come on everybody do the union conga Know that you can keep it going one day longer Feel the power of the union getting stronger Everybody do the conga till their bosses Come on everybody do the union conga Know that you can keep it going one day longer Feel the power of the union getting stronger Come on everybody do the the bosses beat Come on everybody do the union conga My name is Al Bradbury. I work at Labor Notes as the editor, and I'm in Seattle, Washington. For a number of years, I have been going to this wonderful annual gathering called the Great Labor Arts Exchange, hosted by the Labor Heritage Foundation, usually in the D.C. area. This year, it'll be together with the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. But for many years, many decades even, labor songwriters and worker musicians and artists and people who bring creative work to their struggles have been gathering to swap songs and stories and jokes and poems. And I started going a few years ago and it's just always wonderfully uplifting and inspiring. And one of the things they do is a song contest every year. And one of the categories is the parody category. This is the one that I've always really felt like, oh, I found my genre and I used to make labor parody songs but I it's been exciting to find oh there's all these other people who make them too there are these all these wonderful people who have that as their their particular genius that that, that come and swap and what one of the great parody parody artists is Charlie King folk singer Charlie King and he does a whole workshop on on how to write a good parody sometimes and he says you want to you want a song that is well known that's a good catchy song on its own and like the ideal parody song you would change the words very little but you sort of like there's part of it that sort of already works and you just got to make a little tweak so i don't remember exactly when the this idea struck me but it was one of those ideas that like it strikes you and then you're like oh well i just got to make this work this is a fun one and, and i put it together thinking about people on the picket line and how much of a slog that can sometimes be. Sometimes picket lines are very dramatic places of confrontation and excitement and struggle and fear and courage. But also a lot of times uh, on a prolonged strike, the picket line is boring. It's a place you gotta keep trudging around in that circle over and over again, or you gotta lift spirits, you gotta come out one more day. Maybe it's raining or it's cold or it's hot. And that slogan, one day longer, is often, you know, many unions will say, we, you know, one day longer, we just gotta keep at it, meaning both one more day, just like one day at a time, but also we got to stick it out one day longer than the boss does. And that's part of how you win is to by being willing to weather it and, and last and stay together one day longer than them. When it occurred to me one day longer to fit into conga, I put maybe a team like how to make this song. And I thought of it as a song that maybe would be fun to sing on a picket line. I picture people dancing the conga on the picket line. But I actually think that a, a complicated parody song with a bunch of words is not the best song for I've come around to thinking it's better to do simple songs where people know most of the words already and you change out a couple words you know things that people can sing together it's hard to pull something like this off effectively on a picket line I think but it can be fun in the gathering afterwards I think sometimes our first thought is entertainment is fun lightening things up things that are funny and and I think that is important but there is also a quality of um, there is a more serious thing that song does I mean, you think about the black freedom struggle in the South and all of those difficult moments that um, people had to get through where something horrible had happened. People 
had been killed, were people going to stick it out, or many moments like that in labor history where people have died in the struggle or people continuing on through hard fights. And it's, and it's hard to picture people going on without the power of song at those moments because it can be a way to bring people together, to recommit to yourself and to one another about the values that are holding you, to express emotion together. So I think that's something that I always really appreciate about the And it's not only isn't this fun and funny, though there's a lot that's fun and funny, but it's also you really connect to your values and the sense of the shared values. You know, it's a way to, to turn to the people around you who are singing the same words as you and really feel we all believe in solidarity and we have each other's backs and we're we're going to change the world. Like those feelings of unity and, and hope and shared faith and some some commitments and beliefs about what humans are capable of and should aspire to that are part of what music and, and art do also, I think. So the Labor Notes Conference is held in Chicago every two years, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We expect more than 4,000 people this year from all over the world, from all different unions and sectors and industries. And once again, by popular demand, as we did in 2022, the Great Labor Arts Exchange and the Labor Notes Conference are joining forces. So in April 19th to 21st of this year in Chicago, you will have both the hundreds of workshops on all kinds of labor topics and plenary sessions and hear from some of the, the leaders of the most exciting fights in labor of the Labor Notes Conference and a whole track of arts and culture and music workshops and panels and the song contest, which is actually the song, poem and hip hop contest, the, the big concert that they do every year at the Arts Exchange. So it's two in one, it's all included and you can register at labornotes.org slash 2024. Hey, this is Judy Ansel from the Heartland Labor Forum. We're radio that talks back to the boss, and we're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. Corey Doctorow is an essayist, novelist, activist, and public intellectual whose work focuses on themes of technology, intellectual property, and the prospects for freedom in our digital age. In this interview from the Workers' Speculative Society podcast, he talks about his recent book, Chokepoint Capitalism, and the grave threats that Amazon and other huge corporations pose to creative freedom and the well-being of authors and the world. Hello, my name is Max Haven and welcome to the Workers' Speculative Society, a podcast about the politics of speculative fiction, workers' rights, and the world after Amazon. On each episode of the podcast, we speak with someone whose experience or uh, expertise helps us understand the world that Amazon is building and what can be done by workers, writers, and concerned people around the world to fight for a different future. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast and the broader project of which it's a part, the Worker is Futurist Project, please visit workersspeculativesociety.org. And it is my great pleasure to introduce you to Corey Doctorow. He is an essayist, a novelist, an activist, and a well-known public intellectual whose work focuses on themes of technology, intellectual property, and the prospects of freedom in a digital age. Since the 1990s, he's been on the forefront of struggles for the rights of creators, including working in an ongoing way for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. In 2022, he co-authored the book Choke Point Capitalism with Rebecca Giblin, which we're going to talk about today. And he also has a very good and important essay, a short book called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism from 2020. I want to talk to you a little bit about the role that Amazon plays and what you and your co-author called Choke Point Capitalism in a minute. But before we get there, I, I just want to note something that's always been very interesting to us in this project, which is that Amazon itself emerges from a kind of sci-fi milieu, a sort of subculture as well. Jeff Bezos famously styled his appearance on that of Jean-Luc Picard and 
you know, make it so was one of the original names considered for the um, the platform. I, I wonder if I could ask you to kind of meditate on these two very different directions. The genre is gone. Uh, you know, on the one hand, inspiring people to take a kind of critical approach to contemporary capitalism on another <laughs> for someone like Jeff Bezos to emerge as somehow a leader of some of its worst tendencies. Well, so it, it, I could be I could be glib and just say like cyberpunk was a warning, not a suggestion. These guys all read it wrong. And there's an element of that for sure. I mean, not not so much Bezos, although I think he d- deeply misreads Star Trek as a as a guy who is uh, like weirdly cultishly devoted to the idea that markets are efficient allocators to turn around and worship Star Trek, a story, you know, a universe in which markets have been largely abolished except for a race of, uh, you know, caricature uh, uh, mercantilists who are villains in the story because of their devotion to markets is a bit weird. But, you know, the the reality is that there has been a, a very wide reactionary streak in science fiction since the earliest days. Um, science fiction is, I think, a contest between two different ways of thinking about the future. Um, one is the idea that uh, you can predict the future, that there is a kind of, I don't know, deterministic, you know, set in stone course that the future is going to arrive at. If you read old Heinlein novels, a bunch of them have these uh, future history timelines on the inside covers where he sketches out what's going to happen in the next 200 years. And, you know, this is also something that shows up in Asimov with uh, the foundation books, which are about sociologists who figure out how to uh, map the future of human civilization 3,000 years into the future. It's all this, this stuff about, like, the future is coming no matter what, get, you know, get on board or get run over. And, you know, I think that this is a trick because I don't actually think these guys really think they can predict the future. I think what they think is that if they can convince you that they can predict the future, that you won't try to fight it, right? This is uh, Margaret Thatcher saying there is no alternative or the Vogons and Douglas Adams saying resistance is futile or, you know, Dante having the gates of hell have the sign over the the gate that says abandon hope all ye who enter here it's the sign that says give up don't even try right the, this is this is the way it's got to be and you know it's like that all the way down right like how how could you even imagine a search engine that doesn't spy on you that's crazy that's like water that's not wet you know it's we don't it's not that we did something right you didn't we didn't make a choice but the choice we made was to give you the best darn search engine we could and the surveillance is just part of the package nobody likes it but you know it's uh, you got to take the good with the bad and this inevitableism this triumph triumphalism is i think one side of the science fiction coin which is to to just assume that um you can be told the future and that you should therefore get on board with the future. We're going to have this future no matter what. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a form of uh, oppressive futurism that goes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. You know, we, we talk about the Luddites as technophobes. The Luddites were not technophobes. You know, to be a textile worker in early 19th century England, you needed a seven-year apprenticeship. That's like getting a master's degree in engineering from MIT. These people knew exactly what the machines did. And the thing that scared them about a machine that was so easy a child could use it was not merely losing their job. It was that a machine that was so easy that a child could use it had been designed so that they could kidnap war orphans from uh, the Napoleonic War Orphanages in London and lock them up in these factories for 10-year periods of indenture where they were starved and beaten and whipped and maimed and often killed. Uh, and that was what the Luddites were angry about, right? And the people who opposed the Luddites, the bosses and their lickspittles, they characterized what the Luddites were doing as a kind of uh, bestial fear driven by ignorance as opposed to uh, a contest about how the technology should be used. You know, should it should it reduce the hours of working people and increase the prosperity for everyone? Or should it increase the hours of children and reduce the prosperity of everyone except for the mill owners? And so that's one side of science fiction. 
And there's the other side of science fiction, which contests all of that, which says, actually, the future is totally contingent. There is no inevitabilism. You, you, the the, the pre-feast menu where you have to take the surveillance with the search and the maimed children with the mills, that, that can be broken apart into an a la carte. You can choose one from column A and one from column B, or you know what? You can choose none from column B, and you can invent a column C. And that's the real strength of science fiction, that that contestation, that that refusal to say, uh, I guess that's the way it's got to be. And to say, how about this way? Or who says? Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I think when you look at these tech bosses who read science fiction, including science fiction that is meant as parody or as um, uh, warning and dystopia, but also utopian science fiction, and read it and see in it uh, a kind of story that they can slot themselves into as the inevitable leaders of an inevitable revolution that will inevitably do certain things. Um, it, it's not the whole story of science fiction. I mean, science fiction needs to own that because that's part of our genre. It's always been there. Um, you know, you never meet a triumphalist as big as H.G. Wells, and you'll never meet someone as uh, interested in contesting uh, technology and its role as Mary Shelley, right? So there's there's never been a time when the genre didn't encompass those two strains, but um, but you know it's not the the whole story. You're listening to essayist, novelist, and activist Cory Doctorow on the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW eighty nine point three FM, your station for jazz and justice. This is an excerpt from a longer interview on the Workers' Speculative Society, an interview-driven podcast about the future Amazon is building and the workers, writers, and communities that are fighting for different worlds. Here's host Max Haven. So this brings us to your most recent book that uh, came out last year uh, on choke point capitalism. You give us a, a little nutshell definition of what choke point capitalism is, and then... Uh, you 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 uh, talk quite a bit about Amazon as an exemplar of this. Yeah, so choke point capitalism it describes a market where uh, a, a big company or a collection of of big companies, a small handful full of big companies, figure out how to lock up an audience or a group of customers, and then use the fact that they've locked up those customers to lock up um, artists or performers or suppliers so that in order to reach those customers, you have to lock into their systems and they can extract more and more money from you. So imagine a, an hourglass shape with customers in one bulb and suppliers in the other side. That might be merchants, that might be workers, that might be performers, it might be creators, it might be writers. And in the middle is this pinch point, this choke point, where the the uh, choke point capitalist kind of squats like a predator and extracts almost all of the value as the uh, um, people on the left hand side go to the customers on the right hand side, and you know this is very much Amazon's view. If you if you've ever seen their uh, flywheel presentation, their famous flywheel presentation that they give to investors, they say we. Um, we offer uh, low costs. So initially those low costs were subsidized by their shareholders. They just, they just sold stuff for less than it cost. We bring in customers and all the customers turn to Amazon first. We find ways to make them do that. Um, we pre-sell them shipping a year in advance through Prime. Uh, so that means that no one's going to shop anywhere else. Why would you pay for shipping somewhere else if you've already paid for shipping on Prime? Um, we also uh, sell them subscriptions to eBooks and audiobooks so that you get a, a book every month. Uh, so that you, even if there's a book that you want to read, you would never start shopping for it anywhere except Amazon because you've already paid for it this month. Uh, and then because those customers are locked in, because they prepaid for their books, they prepaid for their shipping. All the media that they buy has digital rights management on it, which which is this form of encryption that locks media to the vendor's platform forever. You can't take your eBooks out of the Amazon uh, apps or your audiobooks out of the Amazon apps and use apps that Amazon hasn't approved 
to play them. And so if you break up with Amazon, you have to kiss your library goodbye. So every time you spend money on an ebook at Amazon, that's an ebook you'd have to throw away if you ever wanted to break up with Amazon. And so with these customers locked in, uh, the businesses have to follow. And so that can be creators, uh, writers, people who make audiobooks, musicians. Uh, it's also just all the suppliers, right? Who, who are locked into Amazon, uh, as the main way of, of supplying. And, um, Amazon finds ways to lock them in too. So, um, it, it, uh, makes it very hard for them to surface in the search results unless they are doing fulfillment through Amazon. Um, it makes it very hard for independent authors and audiobook creators to show up unless they're going exclusive to Amazon and, and Audible. Uh, and so all of these creators get locked in, then Amazon squeezes them. So today the majority of money that uh, you spend in the Amazon marketplace stays in Amazon's hands. Uh, it was just a few percent when Amazon Marketplace started. Now it's nearly all the money. Uh, Amazon finds new ways to extract junk fees, warehousing fees, shipping fees, restocking fees, advertising. I mean, Amazon advertising is not advertising. It's what they used to call in the radio industry, payola, when you know, you'd have music promoters who would go and pay the station manager to play their song, even if it wasn't what the audience wanted to hear. Amazon makes $31 billion a year off of its merchants, charging them to put their results at the top of the search page, even if that's not what you searched for, which means that at least $31 billion is being passed from merchants back onto customers. But you never see it because another thing Amazon's able to do, thanks to its power in relation to these um, sellers, is uh, impose what's called most favored nation status. So in a most favored nation deal, no one is allowed to get a product at a cheaper price than Amazon gets it at, which means that if you raise your prices on Amazon to, to cover that 51% that you're giving them in junk fees, you have to raise your prices everywhere else. You're not allowed to sell it cheaper direct or through Target or anywhere else, which means that everywhere we look, the prices that we're paying are higher in part because merchants are raising their prices across the board to make sure that Amazon can get its 51%. Um, that process only gets faster and faster. Amazon finds new ways to lock in audiences, to lock in uh, uh, business sellers, and to squeeze both of them and give them a, a worse deal. You know, the fact that uh, everyone's locked into Audible, if you listen to audiobooks, is why Amazon now feels confident that can start doing things like putting ads in audiobooks, which is, you know, a thing that I think most of us would never have expected and don't want, never asked for, and think is unfair. So I'm going to put on my Jeff Bezos sock puppet now, uh, and and because I want I want to hear your response. Um, sure to wash your hand afterwards. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Oh, I took off into space. I imagine someone like Jeff Bezos, if he deigned to come on our podcast, would say, "Well, look, I mean, the industry we're replacing, the publishing industry, legacy publishing industry, we're no we're no saints. They exploited writers uh, sometimes terribly. Uh, they were also horrible gatekeepers. And if you look at something like Amazon's Kindle Direct Publishing, which has tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of writers on it, I mean, literally anyone can sign up and publish their stuff to millions of readers. Uh, this has increased not only the diversity of authors and the diversity of stories, but also uh, vastly increased the royalties that uh, that writers are receiving. You know. It's, can't remember the figures right now, but I mean, it's, it's much, much higher than the seven to 11% that most authors get with a legacy publisher. What would you say to that? Well, I, I'd say that there's, that there's a couple of cards that he's palmed there, but also, um, that there's a, that this is what I mean by inevitableism because he's, he's not wrong that there are great things about having a self-serve ebook and audiobook platform. The part that I object to is not having a self-serve platform that lots of people find convenient to use. The part I, I find objectionable is the is the bait and switch, the shell games where um, you see royalties actually declining pretty sharply. One of the things we detail in the book is a scandal that's colloquially called uh, Audible Gate, which is where Amazon um, effectively did accounting fraud to hide a, a, a royalty switch on Audible uh, royalties for independent authors on the ACX platform. That's the self-serve part of Audible, where they stole at least $100 million from independent authors. Um, Amazon Unlimited Publishing, the, the uh, Kindle program uh, that you are now very, very heavily pushed into 
as an independent author, uh, does not pay a straight royalty. It has this complex way of calculating the royalty that is completely opaque to authors. And all the authors there, except for a, a select few, are seeing extremely sharp declines in their royalties. So, you know, it, the, the problem isn't the dictator when they're benevolent. The problem is that if they are their dictator and they cease to be benevolent, then uh, they're still a dictator. And so the fact that this program is designed to give very little uh, agency to the creators who work in it is an invitation to mischief. It, it basically uh, invites Amazon to find ways to hurt those authors because it knows they can't leave. Uh, and we see that happening over and over again on the platform. It would be sort of naive to expect otherwise. Like, I actually don't think, I make fun of Bezos all the time, and he's, he's an easy target. But, um, you know, I don't think he's a particularly wicked person. I think that it's it's far uh, truer to say that we are all of us ordinary mediocrities who are capable of talking ourselves into doing terrible things and if we are not disciplined by regulation or competition, then it is very easy for us to rationalize our way into doing things that make it hard to look ourselves in the mirror afterwards. And this is why across the board, you see conduct that is comparable to Amazon's as we see in, uh, increasing amounts of concentration in tech. Tom Eastman says the web is uh, five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. Uh, and... Um, you know, this week as we record, we have uh, Discord, Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, and Reddit all finding ways to screw over their end users and uh, volunteers and workers who supply them. And um, it, it's not because, uh, you know, it's not because these are especially wicked people. I, I think that they're just completely normal people in in, in the circumstances that give rise to uh, rationalization of, of selfish deeds because there's no consequences for them. They don't face competition. There's not really any power that their suppliers or their workers or their users have to punish them. Uh, and, or at least none that have come to the fore yet. I mean, we'll see if the Reddit blackouts work. Um, you in the future listening to this will know the answer to that. But here in the past, uh, on day one of the Reddit blackout, we don't know. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, these guys just end up doing rotten things. So one of the things I like very much about your book, Choke Point Capitalism with Rebecca Giblin, is that, you know, only the first half of the book is dedicated to how the situation is. The second half of the book is is really chock full of quite amazing uh, examples of ways that people are resisting, either through collective action or by partnering with public sphere uh, organizations or creating cooperatives uh, or new forms of regulation. What are some of the ones that inspire you the most that might be relevant to science fiction writers, science fiction readers, people who aspire to tell those stories? For sure. You know, I, 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 I'm glad you mentioned that. People who read the book they get through the first half and they report a kind of alarming, high-pitched uh, whining in their ears that's the sign of an incipient rage aneurysm because the the first half is just these um, like pitiless dissections of these awful scams uh, and accounting frauds that the, the big tech firms and the big entertainment firms use to steal from creators. But uh, in the second half, we really try to deliver these shovel-ready ideas for how to fix things. On, on the theory... First discussed by Milton Friedman, is the Archduke of of neoliberal capitalism, and who was was taken to to hell by by Satan in two thousand and two. And uh, I love using his words because I imagine that he looks up from the spit he's roasting on and gargles a curse around it uh, when I do. But you know, Friedman said, like, look, there will become crises in the future, and when those crises arrive, ideas that are lying around can move from the periphery to the core really quickly. Um, and so our job is to come up with these detailed technical ideas lying around and wait for the crisis and then say, look, the status quo is not serving us time to try something different. So the second half of the book is full of a lot of something's different. And, and one that is relevant to this discussion relates to royalties. Um, I, I talked before about this Audible Gate scam. Um, the way that it worked is that Amazon really wanted people to subscribe to Audible. Um, if you subscribe, you're never going to go anywhere else because you're prepaying for your book every month. 
Uh, and um, if you subscribe, you're a fixed revenue for Amazon. They, they just know that every month they're going to get your subscription payment. It's not this deal where some months you buy a book and some months you don't. So what Amazon really wanted to do was make that subscription offer as... Um, as uh, generous and compelling as possible. So they said to subscribers, hey, you know, if you're not satisfied with the book for any reason, you can return it for a full credit back. Uh, you know, in fact, they they bombarded people with messages encouraging them to return books that they'd given all appearance of liking. They'd listened to it through sometimes more than once. They'd held on to it for six months. And Amazon was just like sending them pop-up messages and emails and in-app messages saying like, you want to return a book? You know, you can return the book. Now, Amazon was able to do this because they were clawing back the royalty from the author when the, uh, when the reader returned the book. But they didn't make that clear to the authors or the readers. In fact, they disguised it on the balance sheet. When you got your royalty report, um, you just got a net number. So you sold five copies last month. Did you sell five or did you sell 50 and have 45 return when Amazon talked people into doing it in order to make... Uh, their subscription service looked more valuable. Um, it turned out it was more like 50. It turned out it was $100 million worth of these books that Amazon had charged back to authors without telling them. It was a data glitch that revealed it. And then uh, one of the uh, mystery authors who'd been using the, the program was a, a retired forensic accountant who went who went through the royalty statements and figured out what was going on. She, she writes... Uh, thrillers about forensic accountants. Uh, my new thriller is about a forensic accountant. It's, it's a very rich subject. And so, um, you know, the, this can all be avoided if you have the right to audit your royalty statements and if there's some transparency into it. So all the royalty statements in the world, more or less, um, are uh, issued by companies in California, Washington, Tennessee, because of Nashville and New York, four states. Because uh, that's how monopolies work, right? I mean, yeah, there's companies everywhere, but but you know, if you got a royalty statement, there's a pretty good chance it emanated from one of those states. And if you audit your royalty statement, which usually you have the right to do contractually, you will often find a discrepancy in that royalty statement. And for reasons I can't even begin to explain or understand, when there is a discrepancy in a royalty statement, it it always seems to favor the company and not the worker. Um, we have no explanation for this. We talked to one company here in Los Angeles that has done tens of thousands of audits over 30 years of record label contracts. And they found that in every instance except one where they found a discrepancy, it benefited the uh, the company and not the musician. That localized probability storm that hovers over their accounting department must be very hard on their CPAs. And my heart goes out to them. But if you say, hey, uh, I found some money you stole from me. I'd like you to give it to me. They'll say, oh, you musicians, you're adorable, but you can't do math. Uh, we don't owe you anything. You can't afford to sue us. But because we're such good-natured slobs, I would give you 50 cents on the dollar. All you got to do is sign the settlement agreement that says you will never disclose to anyone how we stole the money from you. Because then the other people we're stealing for will know about it too. Also, your accountant has to promise that they'll never audit us again. Uh, they're now like out of the game for music audits. Um, and so, as I said, all these contracts are settled in four states. Contract is a matter of state law. State law is easier to amend than federal law regulation. We could amend one or more of the state contracting laws to say as a matter of public policy... Um, we, we uh, non-disclosures cannot be enforced when they relate to material omissions or misstatements on royalty statements. And at the stroke of a pen, you put more money in the pockets of more artists than 40 years of copyright expansion combined has accomplished. It's a, you know, crack in the machine. You stick a, a bar in it, wiggle it around, money pours out into artists' pockets. Uh, so that's one. And, you know, in, in Europe, they passed the Digital Single Markets Directive in 2019. It's kind of a mixed bag. There's some stuff in it that I really think was terrible. But one thing it has is a transparency mandate. Um, uh, anyone who issues you a royalty statement must explain the calculations that went into that royalty statement. It's You don't have to audit them. They have to put it in there. And there's teeth. There's punishment if they don't do it. Again, that's a, that's a, a regulation that we can call for because there will be more crises, right? There's going to be more and more of these wage theft crises. And when they arise, people are going to say something must be done. And if all we do is make copyright last longer, or make it cover more works or make the penalties for violating it worse. It's just going to be more copyrights that are transferred to these companies because they're just going to say, whatever new rights Congress just gave you, you have to give them to us if you want to do business with us. 
And it's not going to help an author get a dime. But if we were to amend contract law or mandate transparency, if these ideas lying around could come to the fore in the moment of crisis, that we could actually rebalance the way that these royalty calculations are made and make it much harder to steal wages from creative workers. Um, so a big part of our project is about making the links between the conditions that are faced by cultural workers, and especially writers, and those that are faced by other workers, say, the people in an Amazon warehouse who are moving their books around or the people in the trucks who are delivering them. And one of the things I really like about choke point capitalism is, you know, in, in the past, we've often thought about cultural workers as somehow like the dilettantes of the, the global working class, you know, getting to sit around and do nice things like record music or write books all day. Drink, drink in a cafe wearing a beret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but one of the nice things about uh, choke point capitalism is you point out that, in fact, in some ways, cultural workers, what sometimes get called content producers, are at the cutting edge of this new form of capitalist exploitation uh, through choke points. Um, and then, you know, in, in the latter half of the book, you detail the way that there are opportunities for new forms of solidarity between mm -hmm. cultural workers and other kinds of workers. Just wondering if you could speak about that a little bit and where you see sure. those opportunities and hopeful signs. Well, there's so an interesting example from the second half of the book is is um, the Uber drivers in California. In in California, um, if you want to drive Uber, you've got to sign a, a contract that says that you will settle all your disputes with the company through something called binding arbitration. That's where instead of going to court and having your case heard by a judge. Uh, maybe as part of a class action where, you know, thousands of you can hire one lawyer to represent you, which makes it cost effective for workers who've had their wages stolen, but who didn't get much wages to begin with. Um, you, in, in binding arbitration, your case is heard by a corporate judge who actually works for your employer. And um, you and your employer go in front of this corporate judge and they make a decision. And, you know, it won't surprise anyone to hear that the empirical research on this shows that they more often find in favor of the people who sign their paychecks, that when they find in favor of a worker, that that um, uh, penalties owed to the worker are much smaller. Uh, and also, um, you're, they're usually confidential, those settlements. And they're uh, not precedential. So if you prove that something wrong happened to you uh, in respect to your worker and uh, your employer and how they pay you, uh, and then uh, some other worker who has the same circumstances shows up and says, it was just the same thing happened to me. They say, I'm sorry, there's no precedence in this court the way there would be in a, in a regular court. And so um, all these Uber drivers, they were having their wages stolen by Uber. Uber is really desperate to figure out how to look profitable long enough for the people who put the first money in it to get out. Uber is never going to be profitable, but you know, they burn $30 billion of Saudi oil money, uh, subsidizing 41 cents out of every dollar and every ride for a decade. And, uh, the everybody want, who, who got in on the scam early wants to get out whole, uh, with a tidy profit before the whole thing comes tumbling down. And so they're always looking for ways to improve their cost basis with what it costs them to make money. And so they were stealing wages from their drivers because that's a way to make your labor bill lower, right? You steal wages from your drivers. And um, they uh, and the drivers were like, you stole from us. And they said, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? Because you're, you're not going to be able to arbitrate, right? Like it's going to, you know, what are you going to, you're going to, you're going to all of you arbitrate? How is that going to work? And that's exactly what they did. They filed thousands and thousands of arbitration claims. Now, the thing is, each one of those arbitration claims costs a minimum of about 1500 bucks to Uber. So that's much more than they would have had to pay in a class action. So with these thousands and thousands of, uh, of, of, um, uh, arbitration claims in front of them, Uber was left going to court and saying, Your Honor, it's obvious to anyone who looks at it that these um, binding arbitration clauses that we insisted on are completely bullshit and shouldn't be enforced right now that they're being enforced against us. Uh, and and the court said, no, 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 these are good clauses. You're going to have to go to court uh, to, to arbitration for all of these claims. And so they 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 sued for peace. They cried uncle and they gave the drivers $150 million dollars. Uh, rather than go to arbitration on all of those claims. So this is a remarkable form of solidarity because, you know, writers are pretty atomized, right? Uh, notwithstanding the the cliche about us all meeting up in the coffee shop to 
drink uh, grappa and wear berets and read our poetry to each other, we generally like don't know each other and don't hang out with each other and don't see each other. That's Uber drivers too, right? The Uber drivers figured it out on Reddit forums and, uh, you know, and standing in, in, uh, in line around uh, or standing, you know, outside of their cars uh, in the airport parking lot waiting to get a buzz. Um, they, they figured it out on, on chat rooms um, and they managed to pull together this incredible act of solidarity that is the kind of thing that if writers could pull it off, because, you know, we're in the middle of the writer's strike here in Hollywood, but most writers aren't unionized. Uh, they're, they're the lucky ones, the screenwriters. Uh, those of us who write books, we're not unionized. We don't get to go on strike. Um, but we can still do this solidaristic action and we can, we can make these big scores if we can manage it. And, you know, we, we close out the book with uh, a reference to James Boyles, this great copyright scholar who's from Scotland. He lives in, in North Carolina runs something called the Center for the Public Domain at Duke University with Jennifer Jenkins. And Jamie says that, you know, before the term ecology was coined, people didn't know that they were in the same fight, right? Like if you care about owls and I care about the ozone layer, what do we have to do with each other? You know, you're worried about like charismatic nocturnal avians and I care about the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere. We're not fighting the same fight or are we, right? When the term ecology comes along, it's like, oh, wait a second. These are different facets of the same system. These are different issues in the same movement. And that's when things start to really catch fire. Uh, and, you know, there are workers all over who have been atomized and had these dirty tricks done to them the way that Uber drivers have, writers have, and uh, the way that Amazon um, warehouse workers have, and especially Amazon drivers who drive for DSPs have where they're subcontractors to subcontractors um, and, you know, insulated from corporate responsibility by these two layers of indirection. And, uh, you know, it's only when we figure out that we're all fighting the same boss, and in the case of Amazon, it's literally the same goddamn boss, uh, that we can actually make a difference. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great interview. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Workers Speculative Society, a podcast about the future Amazon is building and the workers and writers who are fighting back. To learn more about the podcast or the broader project of which it's a part, please visit workersspeculativesociety.org. That's workersspeculativesociety.org. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1874. That was the day Arturo Alfonso Schomburg was born. Schomburg was an important figure in the Harlem Renaissance. He is also considered a premier historian and collector of material on black life in America. Born and raised in Puerto Rico, he arrived in the United States in 1891 and soon settled into the Cuban and Puerto Rican working class neighborhoods of New York City. Schomburg initially involved himself in the Cuban and Puerto Rican independence movements. When he traveled to New Orleans, he experienced Jim Crow discrimination and witnessed black disenfranchisement firsthand. He reacted strongly to the increased racial tensions, lynchings, and race riots of the period and believed that history must restore what slavery took away. In 1911, Schomburg and his friend John Edward Bruce founded the Negro Society for Historical Research and established lasting friendships with intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois. He worked for the inclusion of black history into the educational system and continued to amass a wide collection of literature, art, books, pamphlets, and manuscripts on black life and history. His collection spanned materials from across the globe. It included letters of Haitian revolutionary Toussaint Lavatore, poetry by Phyllis Wheatley, artifacts from Frederick Douglass, and other black leaders. Schomburg's private collection became the basis for the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library's Division of Negro Literature, History, and Prints, which opened in 1925. The division served as a pivotal resource for Harlem Renaissance writers, poets, and artists. Known today as the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, it is recognized as the leading repository for materials and artifacts on black cultural life. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
On January 11, 1912, a group of Polish women textile workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts, walked out after their wages were cut, launching the Bread and Roses Strike, also known as the Lawrence Textile Strike. At its peak, the strike involved some 20,000 workers and included legendary labor leaders like Bill Haywood and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. The R.J. Phillips Band sent us a song to commemorate this event in labor history. going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. If you've got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, we'd love to hear about it. Drop us a note, info at laborheritage.org. Our music today included Rockin' Solidarity Forever by the San Francisco Labor Chorus, Union Conga by Al Bradbury, and Bread and Roses by the R.J. Phillips Band. 
Very special thanks this week to the Workers Speculative Society. That's an interview-driven podcast about the future Amazon is building and the workers, writers, and communities that are fighting for different worlds. It's really terrific. I recommend it. Subscribe in your podcast app. Search for Rival Radio. That's R-I, capital V-A-L, radio. And look for the logo of Rival. That stands for the Reimagining Value Action Lab. It's a research and creativity workshop for the radical imagination active around the world and locally in Thunder Bay, Canada. The Labor Heritage Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show was produced by me, Chris Garlock, engineered by Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement. For WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today is Thursday, January 25th. Here are some headlines. A federal judge sentenced former top Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro to four months in prison and a $9,500 fine for two counts of contempt of Congress after he was convicted of defying a lawful subpoena issued by the U.S. House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. Navarro previously had claimed the House January 6th committee was a kangaroo court. Navarro is the second ex-Trump administration aide to receive a custodial sentence after being convicted of contempt of Congress. Former President Donald Trump's one-time chief White House strategist Steve Bannon was sentenced to four months in jail last year but is appealing his sentence. Navarro is expected to appeal his own sentence as well, though if Trump returns to the White House, he is expected to pardon both of his former aides. Gaza's health ministry said Israeli fire struck a crowd of people waiting for humanitarian aid at a roundabout in Gaza City today, killing at least 20 and wounding 150. A ministry spokesperson said that the number of dead was likely to increase as hospitals do not have the means to treat them. Only 14 out of 36 hospitals in Gaza are still partially functioning, according to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Meanwhile, the International Court of Justice said it will deliver its ruling tomorrow on an emergency request to halt the fighting in Gaza South Africa's emergency request is part of a broader case the country brought to the ICJ accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. The ICJ will not rule on the genocide allegations tomorrow as proceedings in that broader case could take years. Israel has rejected the claim of genocide and sent a legal team to The Hague to contest it. Alabama is set to carry out the first-ever execution by nitrogen hypoxia on death row inmate Kenneth Eugene Smith today. This comes after the Supreme Court yesterday declined to halt the execution. Nitrogen hypoxia is a form of execution in which an inmate is deprived of oxygen until they breathe only nitrogen, causing asphyxiation. Lawyers for Smith argued Gassing him to death with the experimental method amounts to cruel and unusual punishment, banned by the U.S. Constitution. They were backed by the United Nations after independent experts filed a complaint challenging Alabama's policy. Alabama already sought to execute Smith unsuccessfully by lethal injection in 2022, but failed because jail officials could not set an intravenous line on his body. Smith was convicted in 1989 of murdering Elizabeth Sennett. 
and former President Donald Trump is back in court today as the defamation trial against him resumes after a three-day postponement triggered by COVID-19 concerns. Writer E. Jean Carroll is suing over Trump's June 2019 denials that he raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman department store dressing room in Manhattan. Trump has consistently denied wrongdoing and accused Carroll of making up the rape to boost sales of her memoir has signaled he plans to take the stand at the trial. Carroll is seeking at least $10 million in compensatory damages for, quote, injury to her reputation, humiliation, and mental anguish in her public and private life, close quote. Trump was already found liable last year for sexually abusing Carroll in a separate civil trial 